You are listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org. Welcome, everybody, and thank you very much for joining us for today's digital event, where we'll be exploring research during COVID. My name is Fiona Samuels. I'm a researcher at ODI, and I'm really excited to be chairing this event. So as you all know, the pandemic has had huge consequences on every aspect of our lives, including in relation to research and data collection. And I think these are issues that we all need to think about also going forward as we, we try and redesign and rethink through our research and data collection, collection approaches. I'm really delighted to have with me today this excellent panel of speakers from all around the globe. So we have representatives from Nigeria, Gaza, Tanzania and Bangladesh. And they, they will be sharing with us their first-hand experiences of doing data collection during this period. We'll be exploring the challenges they faced, how they adapted them, what new technologies they may be using, and what other issues that the pandemic may have raised around issues related to extractive practices, ethical issues, etc. At the same time, I also want to mention, and this is being shared in your chat box below, that we've also put together a live resource at ODI, which collates different kinds of tools about doing remote research, including during this pandemic. This is a live document, so please feel free to send in any pieces, blogs, toolkits, etc., that you think may be relevant. So without further ado, I would like to introduce you to this fantastic panel. We have Charles Odiako, who's a research associate in the Health Policy Research at the University of Nigeria in, in, in as well as a lecturer in the Department of Psychology at the University of Nigeria in Sukkah. We also have Shuruk Hossam joining us from Gaza, who is a qualitative researcher on the GAGE program, which is part of an ODI project which explores adolescence. We have Diani Mbowe, who's a technical manager of Kamara Education in Tanzania. We then have joining us from Bangladesh, Mirza Mambira Sultana, who's a monitoring and, and evaluation manager of AutoAid. And finally, and last but not least, we have Dina Balabanova, who's an associate professor in health systems and health policy at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. We're keen to make this a very open and interactive um, conversation. So I will be asking a set of questions to, to the panelists, but we very much hope that all of you joining us can, can also put in your questions and put in comments in the chat box. And as we go along and towards the end, there'll be space for us to try and respond to your questions. Please do use the hashtag, hashtag research during COVID-19 to also tweet your comments and questions. And you'll also find all the Twitter handles on the page for this event. So turning now first to this wonderful panel, I'm going to kickstart the event by asking a question. And I'm going to turn first to Charles from Nigeria. So can you start by telling us a little bit about what the challenges that you faced during COVID in collecting, in conducting research and data collection? How have you adapted them? And what use may you have used of digital technologies in doing so? So over to you, Charles. All right, um, thank you for having me. Um, so in Nigeria, we 
um, I, I work as a researcher with the Health Policy Research Group. And for quite some time now, we've been researching on the problem of health sector corruption in Nigeria. And so when the pandemic, when the COVID-19 pandemic came, um, we found ourselves, the research team, adjusting to the realities of lockdowns, to the realities of limited contact with people, to the realities of you know so many changes in the system. And, and so we, we've seen ourselves um, making more use of electronic devices in the field. We've, um, uh, we, we, we have not cut down our field activities as much as COVID-19 will allow us to. So, so, so we have maintained um, going to the field, but obviously we have to adopt the health guidelines um, given by the health authorities in Nigeria and so we we go out with our PPEs. Um, we try to reach um, the health centers where we are working. Obviously, we have challenges. So, for instance, we get to health centers and then we do not see people there. We 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 so we experience a lot of hitches traveling to the places we normally conduct research without hiccups. And so we have the problem of. Know, connecting to the participants, which was not coming as it used to be. And so we had to find ways to adapt around that. What we did was actually to fall back to the connection we had with our community. So the community we've been working with for the past two, three years now, we've built some contacts and relationship with the community. So what we have had to do is to fall back to those relationships and have them contact or make things easier for us to reach our participants. So in our instance, we have had to get to the health authorities in the state we are working in, and they have had to call the health workers who would now show up in the place of work for us to continue our research activity. Thanks for that, uh, Charles. So in a way, you've drawn on your existing linkages and relationship and you've had to adapt your approaches accordingly. So you're still doing face-to-face, -face, but but you're doing it in a slightly different way. So can, can you say a little bit more about how you're doing it in a slightly different way now? All right, so previously, before COVID-19, we would go out to the field with papers and obviously, the COVID-19 preventive measures recommend that we don't have contact with people. And so what we have done now is to have electronic devices where only the researchers would impute data into the systems. And um, we've also had to provide um, protective equipments, hand sanitizers, face masks, and all that for for our participants. And, and so, so that has cost us a bit more in the budget side. We've had to spend more to make sure that um, we are safe and that the people who we are collecting data from are safe. Thanks, Charles. That's really interesting. So you turn to electronic devices more, and then you're also using PPE equipment and therefore having an effect on your budget. I'm going to now. Exactly to Mambira and ask you the similar question. So Mambira, what challenges have you faced in doing data collection 
in, in Dhaka? And how have you, during the pandemic period, and how have you adapted your approaches? You need to unmute yourself, Mambira. Sorry. So in Bangladesh, uh, in, at WaterAid, we are, you know, like uh, for preventing uh, COVID-19, we are more rele uh, more relevant organization. Our work is wash and we do hygiene is a core business for us. So we found that our work is more appropriate and we work with uh, communities who are vulnerable. So there were some relevant studies, but when we planned those studies, then uh, it was lockdown in Bangladesh. So uh, we, uh, one were, uh, study was a, waste, a study of uh, vulnerability of waste workers. And there was uh, with, uh, women's vulnerability to um, uh, menstrual hygiene. So what we did, uh, like we obviously had to plan first complete lockdown and we were not moving anywhere uh, outside home. So um, we had to plan a method so that we can collect um, uh, data remotely uh, through mobile phone. Uh, and we uh, we planned methods so that these are not heavily, you know, uh, quantitative based, but we do have uh, had a semi-structured question. Uh, we developed uh, questions that way that we can do that very quickly with people over phone. But what we had to do is we had to reduce the sample size because uh, we, uh, like in the West worker study, we had a number of uh, people uh, information, waste workers information who we could interview from different uh, divisions of Bangladesh. But uh, we, we understood that with the telephone interview, it would not be possible to interview, uh, you know, like a proper power strength uh, sample size. So we reduced the sample size. We tried to get uh, at least two, four different groups of waste worker. So we reduced the size to, 30, around 30, something like that. And we interviewed them uh, mostly with the same structured question over phone. Uh, so around 120 was planned. Uh, so that's where we, uh, you know, minimized our sample size. So this was a different approach. And for the MHM study, we totally taken uh, a qualitative study um, over phone. So this way we actually planned our studies. Thanks, Mambira. That's really interesting. So you basically turned to use mobile phones. You did semi-structured interviews as opposed to the questionnaire type, and you reduced your sample size. So how did this impact, do you think, um, the quality of your data um, and the rigor? Did you, do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, because we, we were thinking about a rapid assessment, and we understood that it's not possible. But at least we this is the uh, actually a very important time for us to get the vulnerability because people are very rapidly getting exposed, particularly the waste workers, exposed to PPEs and different type of you know uh, health and safety materials that are uh, you know been in the waste, so uh, they are exposed. So we what we we understood that if we could um, interview more from each group, like uh, uh, one group was medical waste worker, one group was household waste workers. Uh, so these two were more vulnerable to the situation. But uh, that was one of the challenges that we faced. That it is not possible to get medical waste worker that mu that much, but uh, household waste workers were more. But more vulnerability was there for uh, medical waste workers. But uh, we had to, uh, so whatever, whoever we got, 
uh, we uh, interviewed them. So, but that's why we had to reduce the size of the sample. So, if we had a better sample size, we we could stratify it and took a uh, proper sample uh, power with sample and for if for each of the group, and then the study would. Uh, identify different uh, vulnerabilities of different groups. So that would be more appropriate. But uh, at least we, we got some ideas of the vulnerabilities. Probably would, the strength would be better, would have been better. Okay, thanks, Nambir. I can see you were talking to maybe different, more different, more different kinds of people than maybe if you had done it just with a questionnaire. And I'm going to turn to Diani and ask him the same question. Diani, how, what, what are you doing differently now in this situation and what challenges did you face and how did you adapt to them? Thank you for having me. Ania, uh, uh, the COVID situation is a little bit different from uh, most parts of the world. Uh, but uh, when COVID uh, hit our country, we, we had several projects on the field which required our staff to go out for data collection, where normally they meet with parents and uh, students to interview them and collect data from them. But uh, due to COVID, we have completely redesigned our approach, and now we are mainly implementing our projects remotely, whereby we have developed remote uh, data collection tools uh, using uh, affordable and accessible technologies. So we are using uh, SMS-based uh, USSD surveys to collect data from the parents but also from the children, because we are working with the parents, but also with the children. So uh, we are using the existing, uh, uh, these uh, uh, existing mobile phones the parents have to collect data through, by sending surveys uh, via SMS, but also we are using WhatsApp, which is one of the common uh, applications used by most of the parents. So we are using both options for, for the parents to collect data from them, but also the same phones uh, which are being, are being used by the parents uh, they are being used by the students or their kids to to uh, to reply or to respond to our, to our survey. So we have tried to adapt to this remote uh, uh, data collection mm -hmm. tools uh, so that we can we can uh, 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 keep our staff safe due to COVID, but also we can ensure that uh, the families and our respondents are, are safe uh, during these times. But uh, this has led to several challenges because uh, our project, uh, which is a continuation of what we initiated last year was uh was about we, we were forced to redesign the, the entire project so that we can adapt these new uh, new methods of implementation because initially we used to go to schools and meet with parents and students and have discussion with them and collect data from them but for now we can't meet with them we have their contacts we have phoned them to inform about the changes we have made due to COVID, but also uh, to explain to them how they can use the tools will be uh, we have developed for, for data collection and uh, we will uh, we, we have uh, uh, redesigned the surveys we have reduced the number of questions we initially we had around 60 questions per survey we have reduced now to about 30 questions so that uh, it will be easy for them to respond to, 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 to the surveys, but also we've incorporated other uh, elements on the surveys, like understanding how the family have been affected by COVID-19, but also how the, the, the families have uh, been adapting to the situation. So we have adjusted a lot of things, and uh, this has impacted our operations in one way or another, and also our budget, but uh, we have done this to, to be able to accommodate to the challenges we have faced due to COVID-19. And uh, so far, uh, we things are working well. Uh, despite of several challenges which, which we have been facing, but uh, uh, thank God things are 
working smoothly and we are getting feedback from the parents and we are trying to uh, adapt and adjust as much as we can uh, to, to, to respond to the, to the challenges we, we are having. Thanks, Diane. A follow-up question. So just to summarize a few things. So you reduced your questions from 60 to 30. You're using mobile phones and WhatsApp to, to interview parents first and then, then, then their children afterwards. Um, can you just mention a little bit of how it actually works? So you send them an SMS question and then, then you have to wait for them to reply to send them the next. If you can explain that a little bit. And then over what period of time do you, do you let them respond? Do you say you have to stop after three days or four days? Is there a time limit? And then my final question, apologies for the multiple questions, is have you seen any difference in terms of the quality of the data and, and, and the rigor of the data that you've been collecting so far? Thank you. Thank you, Fiona. So uh, first of all, we are sending them a message via SMS and WhatsApp and uh, one question per SMS or per message uh, via WhatsApp. And uh, they respond. And once they respond, they get another question. So uh, <clears throat> it's an interactive system or platform. It's like automatic chatbot whereby the parents respond to the question and they get another question after finishing the uh, response to the, to the, to the uh, received question. And uh, this have uh, made uh, forced us to redesign the surveys and focus more on uh, quantitative data, like for, for, for parents to reply with a short, very short text or with numbers by selecting option maybe one or two or three, because we realize that there's, there's also a numerous and literacy challenges to the parents. So we don't want them to write a long text on the message or on, the, on WhatsApp. Uh, the second thing of, uh, on, on duration of the, of the surveys, this has forced us to readjust the schedule of the project uh, from a month of implementation to two months of uh, data collection and uh, field implementation so that we can just give the parents enough time for them to respond to these uh, uh, surveys. As you might know that the, the parents have a lot of things to do. They don't have time to sit down, maybe to spend uh, 10 or 15 minutes in a day to respond to the survey. So for each survey, we give, we, we give them at least three to five days for them to respond to the surveys. And we normally send uh, like reminders or uh, SMS to remind them that uh, the deadline for replying to this survey is this date. So please, uh, uh, please uh, respond to this survey before, before, before the deadline. Uh, oh, the other question you asked about the, the, the quality of the data, I can say the challenge is uh, to make sure that you collect this uh, data from a lot of parents as much as you can, because at the moment we have about 600 parents. And uh, to be honest, we have been facing challenges whereby some parents can't read and write, so they can't actually reply to our, to our texts. Uh, but also they don't have uh, enough time for, for, for them to get support from their kids to the question for them and uh, to, to, to respond to the question on their behalf. So uh, the, the, the sample size have been reduced. Uh, initially, we were targeting to get uh, all 600 parents, but for now we have reduced the, the target about to a half. We are facing, we are focusing to all 600 parents, but our target is at least to get 300 parents to, to, to respond to our surveys. And uh, this is due to the fact that uh, sometimes there's not a problem, sometimes they don't have enough time to respond. and. Uh, other sort of, of challenges. Thanks, Diane. That's really interesting. So, sort of, you know, parameters are changing. We need to be flexible in terms of in terms of time. Time, you know, we need to take into account literacy levels so to get the children to help their parents. So, all ways that the design, you know, sample sizes has has reduced, as the others were saying. So, all ways that you're adapting. Now, I'm going to turn to. Shuruk can ask you the same question. Shuruk, can you tell us briefly about 
what the challenges you have faced in Gaza in doing data collection amongst the adolescents and how have you adapted to this 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 situation over to you Shuruk yeah after the lockdown we were unable to meet people face to face so all the research activities were suspended additionally the ministry of interior stopped all the research activities in Gaza so we suspended our quantitative research work for two months then we got the permission to continue our work again. Additionally, obtaining the ethical approval was a challenge because we needed more permissions from more bodies. Additionally, the ethical approval bodies can't meet. So I mean that there is more bureaucracy in work, but we need data, we need information. So we should do research, but we should use new approaches. So we shifted to use web-based virtual methodology and the digital technology. Um, this methodology played a positive role to contact people during the pandemic, and it has advantages which are not present in the normal research, such as increasing the power of the respondents, decreasing the social pressure, and additionally, some of the adolescents feel shy, afraid, or uncomfortable during uh, the face-to-face -face interviews, so they can talk freely during one interviews. Additionally, we use diary and photos tools and we ask the participants to write their weekly diary and to express their challenges, their activities, their feelings and their, uh, their conditions during the quarantine. I think this tool was positive for the adolescents who don't like to talk and they prefer writing to express themselves freely. Additionally, we ask the participants to take photos which can express their conditions during the quarantine. Our respondents sent to us their diary, their photos through the social media applications such as Facebook and WhatsApp. Unfortunately, we were unable to perform the interviews and the focus groups through the digital resources because of the lack of resources in the Gaza Strip. So we had to make all the interviews through the phone calls. Additionally, some of the challenges that most of the participants don't have smartphones and they don't have access or they can't access freely to the internet, especially the girls. So uh, also we made the groups on the social media to allow the participants to know each other, to make ice break and to share to exchange photos which they wanted to share and to explain during the focus groups. Regarding the Vaughn interviews, we faced some challenges such as scheduling the time of the interviews for the participants who use their parents' phones. So we had to be flexible in time to select a suitable time for both of them and to get the consent from the parents. Also, some of the participants didn't have enough privacy and confidentiality to take to talk freely during the interviews, such as the participants who use their parents' phones, or some of the participants don't have a private place to talk freely during the interviews, such as the participants who live in the camps where the houses are very crowded. We tried we tried as much as we can to adapt this challenge. We asked the participants to stay in a separate room or we agreed 
before the interview an award that the participants can say when he feels that the interview should be ended. Additionally, when I noticed that the participants feel uncomfortable when they change their voice tone because maybe someone else listened to the interview, I changed the talk or I ended the interview. That's it. Thank you, Shuruk. That's really interesting. So again, we're hearing that it took more time because you had more, more bureaucracy to go through. But I think you know the development of these new approaches using diaries, using photos that the that respondents can do them themselves sounds great. And and I think there's also a positive element that you're telling us about. You know that maybe they felt more at ease to, to write than, than to talk. But clearly there were also challenges in terms of access to phones, internet, and privacy. And, and, you know, especially for adolescent girls. So, so that, that it's all really fascinating stuff. Before I move on to the next question, I'm just going to ask the panelists to respond to a couple of questions that you have been, um, you participants have been giving, um, have been posing, particularly around the, the, what the, the panelists have just said. So Charles, firstly, from Nigeria, can you be more explicit about the electronic devices that we use to collect data from the respondents? And then also to Charles, um, how did this affect the quality of data, do you think, if at all? Over to you, Charles. All right. So um, so we, we used tablets. And within these tablets, you can download the, what they call the Open Data Kit, ODK. So if you just type in ODK in, in the Android Play Store, you would find a pretty good tool you can fashion into what you can use to collect data and bear in mind that we don't we don't share it online i mean because our, the the topic of our investigation is corruption and oftentimes we find that we have to engage with our clients face to face for them to explain things to us during data collection so 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 we have our instrument we have our electronic device on our palms, and then we impute the responses the respondent is giving us into the data collection tool, the electronic device we have in our hand. So ODK, ODK is a very good one. You can check it up on Android Play Store. It's available there. And um, to, to a large extent, I think that the this approach, this electronic device approach has improved the quality of our data because we don't have the input in our hands. We, we, the data collectors, the field workers, we are imputing data by ourselves. And so we are very more confident of what we are having. Thank you. Thanks, Charles. I'm just gonna ask another couple of quick questions to Diani from, from linked to what he just presented. So do you usually do classroom observations? And if so, have you been doing anything different anything in place of this currently? And then the next question is, but I think maybe Diane, you already respond to this. You know, the parents who are illiterate who can't read or who don't have facilities for the phone, how are you including them in this method? Over to you, Diane. Thank you, Fiona. So initially last year we had uh, uh, classroom facilitations whereby we have uh, facilitators and they are uh, displaying videos to the kids. And after watching the videos, the kids will uh, have some activities to do on the tablet and have some games to play on the tablets. But uh, due to COVID, uh, now we'll be airing the videos over the public televisions, whereby the kids can watch the videos at home. 
and uh, we are we also consider the option for providing a CD drive the videos for the kids so that they can watch at home. So we won't have uh, classroom facilitations like we, we did last year. Um, the second question about uh, parents who can read and write, uh, we ask if they, they, they can get support from their children, but sometimes it's a challenge for them. So for the one who can't get support from their kids, we, we do a phone interview whereby we call them and we ask them a set of questions, we, uh, all of the surveys and to, to, we record their, their response. And uh, the last one about, uh, uh, dealing with ethical issues uh, on the surveys, we, we, we randomize all the response we get from the parents so that uh, they are random and you can't uh, know uh, what response comes from which phone number. But also we, we, we limit access to, to the platform uh, whereby it's only one person who can download the report and share with the rest of the team for analyzing the data. But also uh, for, the, for the parents and the kids, we ask them after completing the surveys to delete that message on their phone so that no one else can see what they have responded to, 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 to the survey. So these are the, some kind of uh, initiative we are trying to make to, to ensure the, uh, the, the, the ethical issues in the, in, the, in the research. Thank you. Thanks, Diane. So this neatly moves on to our next set of questions, which is precisely about ethical issues. So I'd like to ask Mambira first. Can you tell us a little bit about how you've dealt with ethical issues um, in this period about getting informed consent, issues of confidentiality, anonymity? Do you do anything differently now than you did before? Over to you, Mambira. Mambira, you are muted? Yeah. Yeah, uh, as we had uh, to conduct telephone interviews, we could not uh, get uh, signed uh, ethical you know informed consent but we obviously took informed consent it was verbal but in um, uh, like the voice worker study we didn't in uh, you know like uh, in, uh, recorded those uh, studies but uh, for the MHM study because it was a long uh, case study type of uh, study so there for part partially we uh, recorded so informed consent we took but it's not recorded yeah, so that is, uh, you know, like if anyone challenges about the informed consent, you don't have anything to prove that. So that is one challenge we had. And um, if someone refuses, we had to, there were no other way we could get back to them or convince them for the study. So we just uh, discontinued the study. That way we uh, conducted the study and addressed the ethical issues. Thanks, Mambira. Can I turn to Shuruk? Can you tell us a little bit about how you dealt with ethical issues and about getting informed consent and confidentiality and what different things you do now compared to before? Yeah. We need more admin and ethical approval levels, such as the approval of Ministry of Health. Before Corona, Ministry of Health didn't interfere with the research activities, while after Corona, they should give us the approval. Additionally, the ethical committees are not prepared for COVID-19 and they don't have a system to work on. We need more permissions from more bodies which they didn't interfere with the research activities and the ethical approval before. Additionally, we performed an informed verbal consent at two levels. At first, we get the consent from the participant, then we get the consent from the guardian if the participant's age is under the age of legal of responsibility. 
Also, if the respondent uses someone else's phone, we should get the consent from this person also. We determine the specific session for each participant to explain to him and to fill the rest of data. We explain that um, the interviews will be recorded, the consent is voluntary, how data will be used and stored, and the information will be anonymized. Additionally, we determined another session to explain to them again to re emphasize again. Thank you. And thanks to the different levels of, of sort of getting informed consent you had to face and, and added bureaucracy of involving the Ministry of Health in the ethical procedures. Um, Charles, can you tell us a little bit about how you dealt with issues around ethics and, and anonymity and informed consent and, and what differences from before did you face? All right. Um, in, our, in our own um, situation, the electronic device we had, so the ODK, had the ability to snap people's signatures and upload it to a database. And so what we did was to create a column for um, people indicating their consent. And then what people did was to sign on a blank sheet after we have read the instructions and the whole procedure of the research to them. When they indicate verbal consent, they would then put down their signature on a paper. That paper, we can snap it and then upload that signature to the system. Or, um, so we provided PPEs like gloves. At the point of um, getting the consent, these participants would put on the hand gloves and then sign on the screen, which we've provided for them. Of course, we take time to sanitize things again before we leave the research setting. Thank you. Thanks, Charles. So adapting methods of informed consent using screens including ppe that's very interesting diane uh do you have anything to add on on ethics ethical processes that you have been involved in now that are different from before no just to add that uh for us we uh, used the phone calls to to get their consent to participate on the surveys so as mambira mentioned that uh, we don't have any proof if someone come later and ask for proof for, for, for the consent. Thanks, Diane. There's a general question here of, um, so while using SMS WhatsApp methods and in terms of acquiring participant phone numbers, how do you think it is ethical to use these numbers for research purposes? I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Um, I don't know, maybe, uh, let me ask Diane again. Is it ethical to, to use people's phone numbers for research purposes? What are your thoughts on that? So uh, for us, uh, we, are working, we are working with the same community. We, we, we were working with them last year. And uh, uh, during the, the, our, our research last year, we asked for, 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 their, for them to provide their phone numbers when they agreed. And mainly the purpose of them providing us with their phone numbers for you know, to simplify communication between us and them so for this year first of all we call them to inform about the changes due to COVID. we are adapting and ask if they'll be ready or they'll agree to participate uh, on the new design of the service and uh, if they don't want to participate then we just uh, put their 
uh, phone numbers away and we want to uh, uh, bother them in the survey on the research. So uh, they, they knew that we have their phone numbers. They agreed themselves to give us their phone numbers. And before sending them the surveys, we asked for their permission. And uh, if they agree, then we, 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 we involve them in the, the survey. And even in each and every survey, the first question is for them uh, to agree if they want to take that survey or they don't want to take that survey. So we, we, we normally ask for their permission before they can respond to any survey. Thanks, Diane, and, and the rest of you. I think, obviously, knowing your respondents beforehand, going back to respondents you've asked, done research before, makes life a lot easier, so um, clearly. So now I'm moving on to the next question, which is about yourselves now as both researchers and then the respondents. You know, we know that it, it, COVID is highly infectious. So how have you kept yourself as a researcher and your colleagues safe during this period? Some of you um, have started responding to this already, so you can refer to, the, to what you mentioned before. But also, how have you dealt with the stresses, both mental and physical, in relation to lockdown? Have you changed the ways you work, you're working and in what ways? And I'm going to start with Shuruk, if that's okay, Shuruk. We neither expose any, uh, our respondents nor uh, our data collection team to any risk. We followed the instructions of the Ministry of Interior and we suspended our quantitative research work for two months. Then we get the permission to back to work again. Additionally, we trained our data collection team on the safety measures and we provided them precautions materials such as gloves, face masks, um, alcohol sanitizer, and we trained them how to use the face masks and um, gloves and how to disinfect their equipment. Additionally, when some of our team member felt, members felt sick, we referred them to the clinic. Regarding the qualitative research, we followed the progress of the work through using the digital resources um, and we uh, performed all the interviews through the van, so we didn't face any risk. Now, regarding dealing with stressors, our research team received psychosocial support sessions to be able to cope with the way of changing of the work. Regarding uh, my personal level, I used to read motivational books and making sports at home to be able to cope with the stressors. Thank you. Thanks, Shuruk. Great to hear that your team was so prepared and also psychologically. Great to hear that. Maybe can I ask Mandira, how did you keep your researchers safe and what, how did you change your ways of working? As we were working from home and we were using a telephone, that's why we we couldn't actually it was complete lockdown at that point so we couldn't use uh, go to the field and conduct face to face interviews so we utilized uh, t a telephone uh, that is the only option we had so that that way we were mm, uh, keeping our uh, colleagues and the, our community safe but uh, regarding mm, other issues like they were from our community so uh, most of them were we collected their numbers from our uh, partners or we they know that we work with them only for the waste workers we collected their numbers from city corporations or the uh, 
people they work for. So there were some sort of, uh, uh, you know, official process that we follow. We also have to follow the GDPR processes very strictly in water in Bangladesh. So we cannot uh, use someone's phone number for any purpose or any personal information. We cannot keep them. We have to keep them very safely or we don't collect uh, them usually. So here, as we collected, we uh, spoke to them about it. And if they refused, we don't collect, uh, spoke, speak to them anymore. But how we collected their number, where we get it from, we uh, informed them, and then why we are collecting information. All these things we informed our uh, respondents. Then we collected the information. So um, and it is uh, water aid work. And we didn't use any, uh, only for one study, we used uh, external consultant. But they also will have to. Uh, uh, maintain our policy, the GDPR policy, but um, other places it's watery that we are using. So we will, uh, that is our uh, response to the uh, community that we will not use your name or any of your personal information for any publication or anything. So uh, that's how we think, I mean, we maintained our uh, way of work that, that we continue continuously do at the field. Thanks, Manbira. So, so you're, you're sort of answering the two questions, the previous one and this one at the same time. Um, but I suppose, how did your work, I mean, did you face extra stress as a research team having to work from home? How did you deal with that stress? And, you know, during a lockdown period, what did you do? What tips or, or approaches did you use, if any? Yeah, so we were completely did the, those research when it was a complete lockdown, and that was the period when water aid we do the annual report. So for and other we were very relevant for the COVID prevention. So we were working on many issues. So workload suddenly increased for us a lot for the entire water aid team. Uh, so it was somehow beneficial because uh, we were working from home. This was a new modality. We were we had stress, but we now just few months back we were introduced to Teams. So we were uh, uh, previously we used to use Skype, but Teams we are using even within our office. So we were using it more to connect uh, to everyone every day. We were talking to them. So I think we were very busy with our different kind of work. So. Uh, we were connected to each other over phone and things. So we were not um, really, so time went by very quickly. It was stressful. We shared it, but because we worked really, we were really engaged with work. So uh, we overcome the stress. Uh, that way, I, I believe. Thanks, Manvira. So you had a lot of communication through all sorts of modalities, especially teams by the sound of things. Yeah. Let me, yeah. Let me turn to Charles. Can you tell me a little bit about how you kept yourself and, and your researchers safe and how you dealt with mental stresses of during this period. Um, all right. Um, um, so we, we did our best. We really paid close attention. Our team leader, Professor B, was really keen to make sure that everybody is safe. What we did was to, I mean, because we must have to be on the field to collect data this period, we had to go in private cars. And it was obviously to avoid contact with people using public transport. So we, we made sure each team going to the field, going to health centers, went with private cars. Additionally, um, we, during this period, created multiple WhatsApp groups 
to take care of um, each project we are doing. And so what happens within this WhatsApp group is that each time we return from the field, we give an update of what has happened, where there are challenges, um, are there difficulties. So the team lead will always provide support and will always provide additional resources if each group or team have an issue in the field. So we had a very good um, team leader who looked out for us, um, who looked out for when we'd have complaints, challenges, and then we provide supportive role to each and every one of us. And among the teams also, we share experiences, we share what has worked for us, what is not working, what we can do better. So we had this um, working together, which WhatsApp platform provided for us. Thank you. That's great to hear that. So WhatsApp groups critical for sharing, but also debriefing. And it sounds like, you know, good leadership was critical for you. Good and flexible leadership, you know, make things work for you, which is, you know, fantastic. And, and the same question to Diane, how did you keep your research team and your colleagues safe? And what did you do differently? And how did you deal with the mental stress? Thank you, Fiona. So for us, uh, we are working from home and uh, it's like uh, just recently we have opened our office again. But uh, during that time, we were working from home for the safety of our staff. But we try to keep ourselves so close and we try to adopt new online uh, collaboration tools like Basecamp, where, which we didn't use before, so that just we can keep uh, everyone close and we can collaborate more and, and uh, communicate more easily. But also we uh, utilize WhatsApp. We had a WhatsApp group for staff whereby we exchange a lot of things, some jokes and what's happening at home, what my kid is doing, what your kid is doing, things like that, that so that we can, we can pass through the, that situation during that time. And uh, before even closing our offices, we were providing some kind of training for our staff and we provided uh, PPEs for our staff so that they can protect themselves. So we are trying to find and adapt different ways of uh, handling the situation and avoiding the stress, but also keeping ourselves updated about what is going on uh, in our country and how we can adapt to, to the changes. Great. Thank you, Diane. Um the other question that some of you have already responded to, but I'm going to ask again, um, maybe starting with Shuruk, because I think maybe you have interesting things to tell us, is um, you all do, though. <laughs> How have you kept your respondents safe in this period, both in relation to challenges faced directly and unintended consequences or backlash of doing data collection in this different way? So over to you, Shuruk. You're muted. Yeah. As I told you that we performed all the, the all the interviews through the um, phone calls. Additionally, when we asked our respondents to take photos to express their conditions during the quarantine, we asked them to take photos for the environment from their houses and to don't go out of the house to keep them safe. Additionally, we were committed to the gauge safeguarding protection strategies with a focal person from our, our team to be able to deal with any um, protection issues which may be violated. Um, and we adapted this strategy through using the phones. 
Additionally, this strategy includes a chain of referrals to other uh, relevant organizations or to other relevant individuals. Regarding the relationships with the community, um, I don't think that we say something negative regarding this, uh, but we worked more and we coordinated more with the community organizations to recruit um, participants. And they called them on the phone, they explained to them about the scope and the aim of the study and about the incentives which they uh, will receive. Additionally, our research team um, have update, continually updated information about the COVID situation in our country, uh, including the restrictions which remained or which removed. Additionally, we followed all the policies in the local context and we stopped our work when they told us to stop and we back to work again when they told us to back to work. Thank you. Thanks. Let me ask uh, Diane, is there anything else you would like to add about how you're keeping your respondents safe during this period or any un unintended consequences or backlash that you may have faced? Uh, so, uh, one of the things we've adapted is that uh, we have incorporated some questions to ask about uh, COVID situation on the families or to our respondents just to understand what they are experiencing. But also, on daily basis, we are sending them uh, messages uh, every week uh, to remind them about uh, things they can do to protect themselves and their loved ones and uh, to advise that, uh, them that if you are feeling stress or you are getting challenges, you can talk to your loved ones or to a person you, you trust the most, or you can call the numbers which have been provided by the government and the Minister of Health to provide support for them. So that to make sure that they, uh, they have enough uh, information about COVID and they know how they can protect themselves, but also they know how they can uh, they can report any challenge they might be facing. So we've tried to, to, to provide more information and education to, to them to help them understand the challenges they might be facing and how to, to, to overcome them, which is something which was uh, not part of our project or not part of our research initially. Wow, that's great to hear. The sort of giving and taking is even happening even more now. How about you, Charles? Is there anything you would like to add about how you were keeping your respondents safe during this period and what you were doing with them? Yeah, so like I said earlier, um, because we have to be in the field and we have to think about the people we are going to be meeting, we provided participants with personal protective equipment. And this served as, first of all, a protection against COVID-19, you know, and then additionally, it was an incentive for them. If you consider rural health workers, people who are working in the most remote places, and they barely have access to services and some resources. Therefore, providing something like a hand sanitizer or something like a face mask would go a long way to make them happy and you know make them feel like somebody is actually having us remember this period. I think that part of our adjustment, that provision of um, PPEs, though it, it impacted our budget, but at least it was something that the participants appreciated and then, you know, it was very positive. Thank you. Thanks, Charles. And Mambira, is there anything you would like to add about how you kept your respondents safe during this period? 
So I already mentioned that we were communicating over phone because we, it was a complete lockdown. And then uh, it was, um, we mostly worked for with our communities. So there was no, you know, they knew us. So we faced some challenges when, when we were working in a community where we, from where we are not working anymore, but we worked with them, but they knew us, but it's, a, it's like a distance. So we faced challenges, but it's not like we couldn't interview them. We faced with like uh, probing challenges, something like that, but no backlash or anything uh, like that. And uh, because it was a lockdown and we were uh, using uh, telephone, and, uh, no other issues were there. And we were working with our own community people where we provide water sanitation and hygiene services. Thanks, Mambira. Um, I'm just going to move on to the next question now because um, this is also some of you have started responding to this. So often there is a view, as I'm sure many of you present today ex experience, that in a way re researchers go and extract data from respondents and don't go and give anything back. And it's like a one-way process of taking. So I'm just wondering, and, and some of you, as said, have started responding to this. Do you think this has changed during the pandemic? Is it getting worse? Is it getting more extractive? Or perhaps it's getting better. Are respondents feeling more ownership of the process? Is it are people beginning to feel that there's more equal a relationship? It would be good to hear your, your thinking of this, about this. And I'm going to uh, hand over to uh, Charles because I think you started mentioning this. So maybe you could just refer back to that and say more if you want. All right. Yeah. So um, that experience is true. Um, Oftentimes we come to the field and then we find that participants will always feel like, oh, you've come to ask us questions again about the same things people have been coming to do. And this period of COVID-19 is not different. People are feeling, I think, even more concerned about what we are doing, in my experience. Too. So, um, but they will always come to you with different expectations. Some will see you as an invigilator, some will see you as a supervisor, some will see you, you know, different demands, especially because we are researching in the health sector, which is obviously at the forefront of the pandemic. They have some form of expectations. They think that as we are asking them about their challenges, the problems, the corruption happening around their settings, that somehow we are the people to make the change happen. And so they expect a lot from us. And but you know, we try our best to manage their expectations, explain to them that what we are doing is just a research process, which hopefully will bring solutions. But we are not the immediate solutions that you know they are looking at. However, we found that our the things we went with, so the PPEs was a relief to many of them. It showed concern. It showed people who were interested in their welfare as well. So it, it is a problem, and, and you know, somehow we 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 came through it. And I think the participants we had, or we met, and we engaged with, we're happy with the things we did for them. Thank you. Thanks for that, um, Charles. I'm going to ask now, Mambira, because in a way you're coming from. Water aid, where you your mandate is also to do interventions, so maybe you have a slightly different perspective. So, did people feel that there was a change in terms of unequal relationships? Was it less or more extractive, or wasn't it so much of an issue for you? 
generally it's not an issue for us because we go to community where we communities or to stakeholders whom we work with generally so we even if we work with government or even if we work with in the community only for, the, for to them we we go because we, they know that we are going to give them uh, water sanitation and uh, hygiene services so generally in bangladesh we face this sort of questions if we didn't give them services why did you came why do you ask questions but when we go to our own community we generally don't face those but in this pandemic we obviously went to these um, our own communities for other studies except for the waste worker study uh, and also uh, to the waste workers also we went through a channel so uh, probably because we are implementers we didn't face that this issue very often uh, so yeah thanks mambira i'm going to ask the same question now to shuruk did you face these issues was it any different and how did you deal with it yeah, I think it became better and less extractive because we used a participatory methodology. We don't do research on adolescents, we do research with adolescents. We give them the chance to express themselves freely through writing their weekly diary, and we didn't tell them to write about specific issues so they can express themselves freely. Additionally, we asked them to take photos which express their conditions during the pandemic. So I think by this way, we try to make the toolkit more participatory and adolescents are not just respondents, they are participants. Also, social media helped us too much, too much to perform this methodology. Thanks. Thanks, Turok. That's really great to hear that. And just for the participants, all the tools that Gage has been using and developing over this period are on that online resource link that, that we sent you. So they've got some great tools which are participatory, as Shurok says. I'm going to now ask the same question to Diani. Did you face any differences in terms of the extractiveness, more or less, or any difference? Uh, for, for us, last year, we had a community event whereby we invite all the parents and the kids to showcase what we've done and uh, uh, what we've learned from the surveys or from the research we've made. And uh, we, we share with them what they need to, 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 to do or what they, we have learned and what they can take and practice or implement at the family level. But for, for this time, we, don't, we won't be able to do that. What we'll be able to do is to share some lessons, some tips uh, with the parents uh, via SMS or WhatsApp because we won't be able to meet with them. So this is the only thing we can do for now, but also we are providing them with some incentive after completing the surveys, like uh, something around one USD per survey. And this is uh, provided via phone credit as a compensation for them to participate on the survey. So at the moment, this is what we, we, we are able to do for now. It's not uh, the same as we did last year, but it's something uh, just to, to, to make sure that we, we are in good relationship with them and they, they can benefit from what we, we are doing. Thank you. Thanks so much. I think now we're going to move to questions from the audience. And I can see a few that have been posted here. So I'm just, I'm just going to start now. Um, and this first question now is for everybody. So if you can prepare your responses, everybody. Um, so basically, please, can you clear up how participants with no access to smartphone or electronic devices were included in your studies? Was access to such devices viewed as a necessary for participation? 
So I'm first gonna ask Diani for that answer. Uh, thank you. Uh, for us, uh, we, we are working with uh, around uh, 600 parents which uh, who have been working with them since last year. And uh, for us, most of them, I can say 99% had uh, access to uh, a mobile phone or, smart, or smartphone. Uh, so uh, this was a necessary condition for them to uh, participate on our, on our research. Uh, though if they don't have access to smartphone or mobile phone, we ask them to ask uh, to uh, get support from maybe from a family member who have access to that phone. And uh, for them, uh, it was uh, for us it was necessary for for them to have access to that so that they can respond to 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 our to, the, to our surveys and to, to participate in the research. Uh, as you might know that uh, we are fully implementing this remotely, so we don't have any other means of communicating with them without using the mobile phone or a smartphone. So, do you suspect that you may have excluded potential participants, therefore, in, in your survey? And 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 how have you dealt with that? How how are you dealing with that? Uh, as I mentioned, that we are using the same uh, uh, participant. We we have been using them uh, since last year. So, uh, we, we I can say we 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 have missed some participants because uh, initially our plan was to add more participants this year. Uh, to, like to double the number of participants, but due to COVID, we decided that to remain with the same uh, sample size of 600 participants because they know what we are doing. They we have some kind of relationship with them, so we we found that it was easier for us to work with them instead of uh, adding or recruiting more participants. So I realized this uh, have uh, limited ourselves, but it's due to the challenge we are facing of COVID, and we are not able to uh, move and uh, recruit uh, freely and recruit more more participants. Thanks, Diani. I'm going to ask that question now to Charles. Um, I think I don't need to repeat the question. I think you know it, yes? Yeah, so um, um, we we have not adjusted um, the number of participants we have. We still covered, for, for us, for instance, we, we are looking at 400 health workers in our field work. And yes, we did get that number of health workers covered, and even more. The challenge was that it took more stress. For instance, because of the COVID pandemic, some health workers are not able to make it to work. And so we have to adjust our travel to cover more and more health centers to accommodate the number of health workers we targeted originally. So we, we, did, not, um, we did not adjust our sample size, unlike what Manbira and um, Diane did, you know, in their different settings. Yes, thanks, Charles. So you didn't actually use smartphones for interviews, but you collected the data using your electronic devices. So you didn't face that issue. You actually went in person, which is, I think, different from what the others are saying. You went in person, but maintained distance and did everything. So that's why it's slightly different. I'm going to ask um, the same question to Shuruk now. Shuruk, you. Yeah. As I mentioned in the beginning, one of our challenges was that most of our adolescents don't have smartphones. So we had to make all the interviews and the focus groups through the phone calls. So we didn't miss any one of our participants. Regarding the diaries, we also called them and we asked them the questions on the phones every week and they answered us and we write um, on our devices. So don't miss any one of our respondents. 
Okay. So all your respondents had to have phones to be able to participate, you mentioned, but that was also challenging because some didn't. So how did you do it when some of them didn't have phones? Yeah, when someone uh, didn't have a phone, we contacted the parents and we scheduled the time of the interview with the parents and we made the interview through the parents' phones. This was a challenge um, in our study, but we were, uh, but we had to deal with this because there is no other solutions. Most of the participants, especially the young participants, used their parents or their mothers or older brother or older sister phones. Um, so we had to schedule the interviews with the parents and um, the owners of the phones and we take the consent from them to allow their uh, sons or their sisters or younger brothers to make the interview. Thank you, Shuruk. And, and now to Mambira. So um, did you include people who did not have access to phones in your study? And, 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 and how did you manage? Uh, probably not. We, we purposely actually have taken people who are or they had phone numbers. Um, like waste workers, we had like 400 phone numbers from one's, one division. And from others, we had at least uh, the supervisor's numbers through whom we can get others' numbers. So everyone has a, at least a phone. We didn't need a smartphone because uh, we didn't use the technology. We just uh, used phone calls. So uh, that's why uh, just having a phone number was, uh, but, uh, was enough. Another thing was that we were we selected them purpose purposively. Uh, we actually didn't go for a random sampling where we would randomize and then we'd find that he that person is not doesn't have a phone number. Uh, so uh, sometimes for waste workers, we use some sort of a snowball uh, uh, method. Like from one waste worker, we took number for the other, or for this from supervisor, we took number from the other. So that type of method we um, approached. Uh, but we obviously took interviews of, of people who had phone numbers. But in Bangladesh, there's a large number of people who has telephone access to te uh, mobile phones. It's like 12 crore. It's a very large uh, population. So very few people you will find who doesn't have a phone. Thanks, Mambira. I'm, I'm moving on now to another question. So um, this is to all of you. Um, how are you, you taking into account the impact on women and girls within, of, of, the, of the pandemic within your research? Are you using any particular methods and approaches to reach to women and girls and how are you measuring the impact? I think this is less relevant for, for Shuruk because most of her research is focusing on adolescent girls. So that's the whole focus. So it may be less relevant, but the others where you are doing more general population surveys, maybe um, research, maybe I will ask you. So maybe, uh, Diane, would you like to have a go at responding to that? Thank you, Fiona. So for us, most of the parents we are working with are uh, mothers, are women. And uh, uh, this is not because of the design of our surveys or of our research, but it's because uh, that uh, we got these phone numbers because we, we, we asked the, the, the kids to, to ask their parents to participate on the surveys and uh, 
you know, you know, normally most of the kids are uh, more closely with their mothers than their fathers. So uh, their mothers are the, were the one who responded uh, responded to, to to our request and attended our surveys last year. So we work with most of uh, our respondents are mothers of these kids compared to fathers. And uh, for us, uh, uh, it's not because of the design of the surveys, because of the of the situation, and we have been uh, facing like uh, similar issues with them because they have like. Uh, limited time during the morning and they have more time uh, during the evening to respond to our service so these are the kind of things we are we are experiencing on our, on our side okay thank thanks diani i'm i'm going to move on now um to another question which is specifically for charles and mambira so if you can you can respond so i'm going to read it out while reducing the sample size in both of your studies do you, do, do you think that the reliability of the research instrument has been affected? Did you do anything to safeguard the reliability of your, in, your research instrument? And if yes, what did you do? Exactly that. Yeah, what did you do? So, um, but Charles, I, I don't think reduced the sample size. So I don't think... Yeah, exactly. So this was the question I was trying to respond to earlier about sample size. We we did not reduce our sample size. Um, we actually met the target we really planned to to capture. There was no need, even though it took us more resources, more stress to achieve that. But there was no need for us to lose our sample size. Yes, I, I, and I think actually it's Diani and Mambira who reduced the sample size. So maybe I'll ask Diani, can you respond to that question maybe? Um, yeah, go ahead. Uh, thank you. So for us, uh, uh, this is the same sample size we used last year, but uh, for this year we plan to double the, the sample size. Uh, so that we, we, we can get more more data from the from the field, but uh, unfortunately due to COVID and due to the uh, uh, the, the, the changes we made to, to 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 the project, we decided to go for remote implementation, and uh, we we thought that it was it would work best if we use it. We uh, will be using the same sample size or the same response we used last year. So uh, I can say this has uh, some effect on our on our research, but. Uh, uh, the good thing is that we, we changed the, the total focus of our, our project instead of uh, focusing on large sample sizes, we decided to, to go on depth to measure more uh, more effect of what we've done last year and if it have any effect in this year and uh, uh, during this time. So uh, because the, the, the approach and the design of our, our project was changed, it didn't have much effect on us uh, by using the sample size. But uh, we, we, we were forced to make some changes on the design of the surveys and the research so that we can we can measure what we were intending to measure on the same sample size we worked with the last year. Thanks, Diani. And Mambira, can you also respond to that question? Because you had to reduce your sample size. And how did that affect the research instrument? Go ahead, Mambira. So the research, uh, I would say that uh, we actually took a different approach. We actually didn't uh, only reduce the sample size. It was not uh, like a sample survey, a complete sample survey. It was a small survey, semi-structured questions. Then we took um, other methods, like we went to KIIs. Those were also telephone interviews. Uh, so to validate the information from 
the waste worker wor workers to the uh, and then we went to stakeholders but if we want to do some in-depth with some stake uh, waste workers we did some more in-depth interview with them so that we can get more responses on uh, if we if we feel that the it's, it's more of a semi structure qualitative approach it was not like we changed the approach uh, completely so yeah we, we didn't go for a quantitative method in in these, uh, so that that was not the consequence, I would say. But if uh, the West Worker study uh, had an uh, opportunity to conduct uh, samples, uh, I mean, complete sample, uh, full power, uh, strength, uh, statistically significant uh, quantitative survey, that we didn't choose. We didn't approach that. Thanks, Mambira. Um, there is a question about. Um, is there space to collect data in a new and creative manner? Have any of you tried any different or new ways of collecting data over the phone or in person in, in be it discussion or an in-depth interview? I mean, I think a lot of you have been speaking about this already. Um, we've heard about the diaries, we've heard about the photos, we've heard about the mobile devices. Um, I don't know if there's anyone else, anyone who would like to add something that they haven't mentioned already in terms of slightly different way of collecting data than they have done previously, they haven't talked about. Um, I'll, I'll ask, uh, who shall I ask first? Diane, do you have anything to add? Uh, I don't have anything specific to add. Just to mention that, uh, you know, normally it depends on uh, the intended uh, audience or respondents you are working with. So uh, it's normally you, you try to analyze uh, my audience, uh, what are the technology or the tools I can use which are uh, uh, which would work with uh, my, my audience. So maybe for us, we thought that uh, our participants are used to, uh, to to SMS and WhatsApp. So those will be easy tools for them to, to, to use instead of uh, maybe organizing a webinar with them to have a focused group discussion or any other, other thing to, to do. With. So I think it depends on the, current, the the audience you are targeting and uh, your audience will determine what kind of tools or technology you would use to, to collect data. Thank you. Thanks, Diane. Would anyone else like to uh, uh, answer that question or add anything? Just unmute yourselves if you would like to and just start speaking. I'll give you a couple of minutes, a minute. No, I, th I, think, I think everybody probably has responded to that. Then there's another question here I, I would like to ask you. Um, so do, have you been providing compensation or incentives to the research respondents? And some of you have already started responding to that, but maybe we could like to hear from the others as well. And does this influence and or generate some bias in terms of the profile of the respondents and thus the reliability of the data? So I might ask Mambira to, just to comment on that. Have you been providing any incentives to your respondents? Yeah, yeah we were providing uh, through our, you know, uh, online, you know, Bikash, uh, we were providing a very minimum amount. I wouldn't have that just um, a value for their time. It was very small amount. It's not like a huge amount to create a bias that they would want to uh, say something good or bad. It's just that um, we provide sometimes 100 taka for the entire interview, uh, one hour interview uh, over uh, our, you know, online channel. So incentive was good uh, because we were buying their time during this pandemic, uh, but it was not, uh, I wouldn't say that it created any bias. But was it different from what you were doing before? 
Yeah, it was different because we never actually, um, we we go for baseline, inline, or any other community, but we don't provide any incentives when we have like sample surveys or, or qualitative methods. But this time we, we did that you know, because of the lockdown and people were, we knew that people were having crisis where, uh, in our communities, people were, you know, they didn't have uh, enough work. So we, we knew that these sort of things were there. So it, it would actually uh, at least uh, feel, make them feel a little, um, you know, interested to uh, be in the interview. Thanks, Mambira. Shuruk, did, did you give any incentives or compensation to your respondents? And how was it different from before? Yeah, we made the data collection at three rounds. And we paid incentives for our respondents three times for um, the cost of the internet services to be able uh, to use uh, the internet to make the interviews. Was this different from what we before? We provided them uh, previously. We used to pay to them uh, the trans transportation allowances and refreshments. Okay, thank you, Shuru. Uh, and what about um, who haven't I answered? I can't remember. Uh, Charles, <laughs> what did I, you talked about providing PPE. Was there anything else that you provided to your respondents? Yeah, so for some for respondents, we provided stipends as well, and this was actually to cover sometimes transport expenses, sometimes value for their time. Um, as most of them have to come from very far distances to their health centers. We have to talk to them in their health centers. And so um, we find that um, because transportation is disrupted most times, the cost of traveling is high. So we, we provided very, so about $1 stipend for them to come in. We, we don't usually do this, but the situation, the times, have meant that we do this to make sure we get the quality data we want to get. And the money didn't make any much difference for them. What made a difference for them, I would say, is the provision of the PPE, so the face masks and the hand sanitizers. It was really, really one thing I would say I noticed that they appreciated during the data collection. I wouldn't say it influenced the results because um, we often give them that. They don't realize we will give them that. We give them that after the exercise. So we, we give them something to sanitize their hands before we start the interviews. And then we tell them, okay, you can now keep this. It's now yours. You can use this, um, you know, for your own personal use. So I don't think it will affect or it did affect the quality of the data we had. Thank you. Thanks, Charles. It sort of highlights even more to me the, the need to be flexible in budgets and planning and resources and, you know, how good leadership makes all this work. And, Diane, would you like to respond to that? You mentioned something before, but go ahead if you have anything to add. Yeah, just uh, to add that for us, uh, this time we're providing less incentive than what we provided last year because for us last year we were providing them around $2 for them to come at a school whereby we interview them and have some discussion with them. But for this year, we are providing one USD for them to respond to a survey because for now they won't need uh, to travel, just to uh, spend their time to respond to our surveys. And uh, I don't think this provided uh, any 
difference uh, for, for us for the data or the quality of the data collected. It's only a way to appreciate their time and their willingness to participate on the on the on the on the surveys on the research. Thank you. Thanks, Diane. Just just quick follow up question on that because obviously they were used to getting more before and now you're giving them less. So did that cause any issues? Did you face any issues related to that? No, because for the last year we are uh, covering their transport costs for them to travel from their home to a school whereby we meet with them and interview them and uh, have a discussion with them. But for this time, they don't need to travel uh, anywhere. They just need to spend their time like half an hour to, to respond to, to, to the surveys. So uh, we, are, we are trying to be as realistic as possible, not providing too much or too less for them. Okay, thanks, Diane. I'm going to move on to the now final question. Thanks everybody for all your audience questions, and, and there are some that I'm going. To, we will pick up on now again. So I'm going to ask the panelists all to respond to one final question before I hand over to Dina to to make a summary or highlight some key points. So now, in terms of what are the positive learnings now going forward? You know, what might we or you do differently as a research community in terms of data collection, all the different aspects of it? going forward, what are the positive learnings? What might you do differently? And I'm going to start with Mambira now. What are your thoughts? Uh, so one thing we learned is that, yeah, there are possibilities we can utilize different approaches. And obviously from this uh, call also, I learned something like um, what Sharuf was saying, uh, that uh, they utilized uh, the community and their um, information, they give them diaries. So this is one approach we can do when we are not able to do face-to-face -face interviews, go for rigorous uh, you know, sample, sample surveys or in-depth interviews for a long time. But we need some baseline information, then we need to compare what the changes are because we are implementers and we are giving them services. And we need to know what the changes are if, if we are able to protect them from COVID spread and if we are preventing uh, prevent them from that. So uh, that type of approach we can uh, uh, take and we can, you know, you very easily we can you know, take volunteers from our, uh, our respondents, uh, from our people who are we are intervening and then uh, giving them some sort of um, training, online training or something, so that they can utilize the skills to uh, respond to the questions that we have or to write some things that they are facing on a daily basis, some sort of method like what uh, Sharuk actually uh, took in her study. So that was very inspiring and we can actually uh, uh, learn, We I actually learned from that and that would be a, a great opportunity for utilize this sort of methods where we can actually utilize the community themselves for researchers rather than hiring um, consultants or, um, or interviewers. Thanks, Mambira. And I think what's really important from your perspective is that you already have in your communities, you have community-based implementers of different kinds. And I think what you're suggesting is rather than just use them to implement, they could also be collecting some form of data for you in sort of creative ways. And it's great to hear that you already learned from Sharuk. So maybe we'll hear from diaries coming from Dhaka. Um, Diane, let me hand over to you. What would you, what are the positive learnings going forward? What would you do? Thank you, Fiona. I think one of the things which I've learned is that uh, we need to be as flexible as possible to adapt to the changes because from what I've learned from all of the panelists is that uh, they have adapted and 
but to different methodologies to due to the challenges we have been facing. So this is the key for 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 anyone doing research that they need to be as uh, flexible as possible to adapt to the changes. But also the the other thing I think it's very important to build relationship. And uh, uh, research is not a one-way thing. It's, it's need to be a two-way thing that build a relationship with your respondents so that you can, they can adapt to the changes you are you are trying to, to implement uh, based on the uh, different challenges we are facing. And also the other thing we have learned is that uh, it's very important to uh, to up, uh, explore different options uh, or different ways technology can assist uh, you in uh, doing the, your research because. Uh, what we've found is that uh, we have been using technology since uh, last year, but uh, in this year we've been forced to explore new ways of using technology to to help us in uh, uh, doing our research. So I think uh, these are the key thing, three things I've learned to uh, in, in this situation. Thank you. Thanks, Diani. Charles, what have you learned and what, what and positive learnings also to take forward? Thank you very much. I think um, largely from what um, I'm experiencing. So the experiences of Diani and the experiences of Mambiria, they are all important. So flexibility in planning, in budget, in, in, in you know, making sure that we are not too rigid, that we must follow down this research SOP this way, that we can adjust to changes. So I've learned that from the panel, I, I learned really that if somebody can conduct um, a focus group discussion via Skype, is interesting, even though I find it difficult to adapt it to our own research methods, obviously because many of our participants are in remote places and then network you know, access to mobile facilities are quite rare. But another different thing I would say that is very important for me during this period of COVID-19 and how that relates to research is that this pandemic has given us the opportunity to observe how systems work in crisis. So in the process of doing our research, we've, we've come to see different perspectives and, and different possibilities on how a crisis of this nature can impact health systems. We are seeing how the police, for instance, can interrupt things um, during times like this. So, and, and we've seen how, you know, there are new lessons, there are new things we can pick out by going out to the field. I'm not encouraging that people, you know, break the rules of lockdown or not, but there are lessons that we can learn during periods of crisis like this. And obviously it's going to be informing future research activities we're going to be doing. How would health systems adapt if something of this nature comes again in the future. And we can't answer these questions if we are not learning from the field now. I think that's a more important reason for us to be in the field this period. Thank you. Thanks, Charles. Really reflective and thoughtful comments. And last but not least, I'm gonna ask Sharuk to respond to that question. Going forward, your positive learnings. Yeah. I learned that research is doable in all circumstances, especially in complex affected contexts, such as places where wars and siege as uh, Palestine or Gaza. Additionally, we need to, more, to do more research in emergencies because we forget many uh, vulnerabilities, uh, which uh, many people don't uh, give them more attention. 
Additionally, we need to adopt procedures to increase the effectiveness of phone interviews and communication, such as to contact the participants before the interview to understand their context, to know their needs, uh, to know if their resources are sufficient or not, and to provide them resources such as smartphones. Also, we need to focus more on the individual interviews because focus groups are not effective virtually. Furthermore, we need to train the team of the data collection more to obtain or to increase the quality of the data. Also, we need to be more flexible to, to select a suitable time for the interviews. Thanks. Thanks, Sharob, for all those great tips um, going forward. All food for us to think, food for, food for thought. And now I'm going to hand over to Dina, who's going to say a few summing up words. Um, over to you, Dina. Thank you very much, Fiona. Um, this has been an illuminating discussion. I've been listening to all the panelists with great interest. And um, my wish for the future is that we hear more of these experiences. So we hear more about researchers who are doing this research, who are in the field, uh, and their experience of coping and their experience of learning and developing new methods. I found it extremely interesting, and I'm sure a lot of our audience will feel the same. Uh, one of the surprises when we talk about COVID, we always talk about lockdown and everything has stopped. But actually, a lot has continued, and that's one of the surprises. And that's why the webinar today was really important to understand what, how to deal with COVID. Because we do research um, to realize benefits for vulnerable groups. So our researchers have obligation to conduct their research. So we can see how they're all driven by this imperative to continue. So they're not just stopping, but they're finding actively ways. We heard a lot about um, adjustments to the design, and that was interesting in terms of what is possible and what can be done using the digital technology and what can be done by phone, enforcing safety standards. And uh, But what also struck me is that it's not about one design. You could make a change today and then having to do change tomorrow. So a lot of the panelists talked about being very mindful of what's happening almost on a daily basis. So that's something that we don't sometimes do, the flexibility that you need to change and vary the design almost daily. Um, and they did it as a part of their practice. Again, one of the key themes I wanted to really highlight that all of the panelists talked about is the value of relationships, uh, the relationships in the community to ensure that you have access and you could really talk to people in advance and not just show up there and expect to do the same sort of data collection, but really thinking about how to make things easier, how to suit the new situations in which the informants and researchers are, have found themselves. And I can see a lot of, again, attention to communication and to really trying to understand the position of the respondent. Uh, again, the small gifts and tokens and generally just checking with them what is happening. I think that's something that we may have to take for granted sometimes, but it is essential. Um, it is, uh, in some ways, COVID didn't change this. It just made it much more pronounced in terms of uh, what is required in terms of communication between research teams and respondents. 
again, we, we talked a lot about flexibility and flexibility in budgets. So we all know we write grants and how difficult it is sometimes to have a line item and to negotiate with our funders to have line item for unexpected contingencies. And this is something that I hope um, funders and governments would rethink in terms of funding research to really understand this flexibility. We talked so much about it. Again, uh, I think uh, never, as they say, never go, never let the crisis go to waste, but let's learn from this. And a lot of you are really learning and trying to think of what can be done that's further um, in terms of methods, in terms of approaches. And um, so one of the things that um, uh, struck me is the autonomy of the researchers. So in many cases, the researchers are taking decisions there in the field and what is it that they need, what support they need. And I think it's important because Sharuk talked about the legislative uh, regulatory framework. So Mambira um, talked about GDPR and you really have to, the researchers are mindful of this regulatory framework. They have to comply. So the compliance issues is very important for their organizations. At the same time, they're in the field, so they have to be adaptable and they have to think about safety. But I was very impressed how you talked about the mental pressures. And we we have a lot of biomedical debate where we just talk about safety and sanitation, uh, sanitizing hands. And, but actually the, the pressures, the mental pressures are huge and this is already documented. So again, what is needed to support the researchers? So some of you talked about um, all these new adaptations, all this new work. It's new work, it's additional work, it's added work. It's not just adjusting the budget, but the day has 24 hours and many of our researchers and you talked about how this adds a lot of um, effort, additional workload. So again, uh, many of you said maybe Maybe we need a different type of support, not just saying, okay, did we meet the sample and did we do what we meant to do, but actually what exactly do you need in order to, to uh, not to, to avoid burnt out and to really work with the communities and ensure that there is no extractive practice. Again, so it all boils down to leadership and really uh, somebody overseeing, but having this sort of feedback loop and real-time connection with the field and all these adaptations uh, being taken into account in new studies. Again, um, we many of you mentioned issues around creating new inequalities, people who don't have access to technology or even people who, who may have access to technology but privacy issues. So many of you are mindful that a lot of this crisis, and it is known, very as we saw in the UK and many other countries, Crises such as COVID, they actually exacerbate inequalities. So um, it's wonderful to see that many of you are thinking about that and we should all think about that. So finally, um, something that was really important, that's one of the few webinars, maybe the only one I've attended, and I would like to thank ODI for hosting it. Um, it's really interesting to document this experience because as Charles said, it's not just about COVID, it's about working in crisis and how do we work in crisis? What can we learn and how can we prepare for the future? Hopefully not another pandemic, but another disruption. It could be a national disruption or any other issues which could be local. 
So what can we learn from each other? And during this conversation, we talked a lot about learning from each other. Already you had some ideas, but how do we keep this going? How do we connect researchers beyond particular research projects, but just connect them and make sure they learn from interesting practices in different uh, places. So I'll conclude with that again. Thanks to everybody. It has been wonderful to hear your experience. Thanks, Nina, for those fantastic concluding thoughts and comments. And I think that it's giving us a lot to think about as we go away from this um, event, which I think was really fascinating and so rich to hear all the experiences from all of you in the field. And, and also from the questions from the audience, I'd like to let you know we had almost 200 people from over 36 countries attending. So that, that was great for us. And I think just to remind you, please do um, share the resources that are in the link, you know, see how we can take forward some of these debates on, on, on you know, the real practices, the real sharing of knowledge in the field. And I think I just want to end with one thing that Mambira had said to me, but she didn't actually say it in this discussion, but I just wanted to repeat it because I thought it was really interesting is because she said, you know, okay, it gave us a lot of stress because suddenly we had a lot more work to do by ourselves, at home, over the internet, over phones. We were, we were not able to work with people from outside, but we had to draw on our own resources, their own internal Dhaka-based or Bangladesh-based team. And it also empowered us. It gave us a sense, actually, we can do it. You know, We don't actually need outside people. We can do things on our own. We have the capacities. So I think that was a really nice sort of takeaway message you know you do everybody has the capacity to do it I think it's just when push comes to shove when we plan and we think and we share we can all do it so I'm going to end there now thank you very much everybody and have a good rest of day to everybody thank you for listening for more ODI live event podcasts find us on SoundCloud or subscribe to the Overseas Development Institute podcasts via iTunes.